0: Our reading tonight is from Luke, chapter 22, beginning at verse 47. It can be found on page 1058 of the Church Bibles. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was one of the twelve was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, ...when darkness
1: reigns. What a great last verse, isn't it, to to that passage? This is your hour when darkness reigns. On this Remembrance um, Sunday evening, it's good to think back at what our young men and young women have done in in times past and to remember them and to remember their courage. and, And hearing that verse again... I was reminded of, of the, the young bomber pilots in the end of the Second World War, that they flew off into the darkness, didn't they? Leaving the safety of the UK airports behind them. In these thundering great Lancaster bombers with their four engines, they were locked in this like hollow metal, very, very noisy, very, very cold, very, very frightening environment. Darkness was for them. Darkness reigned for their lives. They were afraid And they often said that the Lancaster bomber had a crew of seven, but a visitor of one on every flight. And that visitor was an unwelcome visitor. It was fear. And it was with them. These young men suffered incredible fear. And rightly so. Because what they were doing was an incredibly dangerous thing. And statistics have said that um, the the young pilots, they did various, they went on their operations, one operation, two operations, When they went and dropped their bombs and came back again. And they did 30 operations, and that was called a tour of duty. And it was said, statistics said, that the, the people that have actually managed to do one tour of duty, one out of every six, they were the ones that survived. Five out of six didn't make it on that first tour of duty. If you were called and able to do a second tour of duty, it reduced to just one in 40. Fear reigned then. And in the garden this evening, we can, we can understand and sense the garden of Gethsemane. It's the middle of the night or the early hours of the morning, a Friday morning, good Friday morning. And after the intense agony of Gethsemane that we heard about last week, the Lord Jesus almost comes out of that intense agony and there's just something about him that's different. And the disciples were were half asleep and he gathers up these these exhausted group of disciples and, and then suddenly the calm is shattered By by a great crowd of people that that come into the garden, the Roman soldiers, the the religious leaders, the various other people, this mob armed with swords and clubs and they're carrying torches and lanterns we're told, here to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's quite easy to imagine the scene, isn't it? It's vividly described by the four gospels. We can, we can, we can almost be there and sense in this darkness, that the fear and the shock that must have gripped the disciples from half asleep to wide awake in an instance. And out from or, or ahead of this angry mob steps Judas, one of the twelve disciples. And it was he who was leading this mob to Jesus because this was his moment of betrayal. It was a time of, of deep, deep crisis the disciples, a time indeed when darkness reigned for them. So let's look at this passage together and and somehow to to, to apply it to our lives here and now at Bishop Hannington with God's help. Let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love and power. Your call to us almost is impossible to, to reach the heights that you want us to reach but that we know with your help and strength we can be there, we can do what you call us to do. So we pray that we might sense your presence with us this evening, explaining these truths to us and then applying them to our hearts, that we might serve you better, love you more and love your people more. Amen. So, let's turn together to that passage. First of all, verses 47 and 48, where we see the betrayal, the act of betrayal. And Judas comes up and betrays Jesus with a kiss. This is the normal greeting of a friend in those days. And and Judas steps out from this angry mob and kisses the Lord Jesus Christ. And we we, we read read that in Mark chapter 14. Now, the betrayer, had arranged a signal with them, that's the religious leaders, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him and lead him away under God. You can imagine the commotion that was going on. They could so easily arrest the wrong man. So Judas had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss, he is the man. Judas steps out. Betrayal, it's it's a terrible thing, isn't it? We hear of it in war, don't we? We hear of it in the spy stories and stuff. It's a terrible thing. But the betrayal of a friend, that's even worse. And a close friend? And it's hard for us to imagine. It's hard for the disciples to imagine. When Jesus had already told them, one of you is going to betray me, it's almost as like it went over their heads. And they, well, is it me? Is it me? they got no idea who it was. But it was no surprise to Jesus because... At the Last Supper, just a few hours before this moment, he said to them, The hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. And it was Jesus who sent Judas out earlier on. What you are about to do, he said to Judas, do quickly. And again, the disciples, it went over their heads. They they thought he'd sent him out to, to get some money or to do something. And here Judas is betraying the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read this passage, what a sombre moment this is, isn't it, in the Scriptures? He steps out and betrays the Lord Jesus Christ. The one whom he's seen do the most amazing things. What a terrible moment this was. What a sombre moment. And what a shock for the other eleven disciples. There's Judas. What's Judas doing? And then he's kissing him. And still I'm sure the penny hadn't quite dropped. What a terrible thing. Je- Jesus had already said about that betrayer, woe to that man. And in Matthew's Gospel he said, it would have been better for him if he had not been born. That's not a throwaway statement. That is frightening truth. It would have been better for him not to have been born. What, what, a, what a It should make a shudder to hear that. So in verse 48, the Lord speaks to Judas. Judas, you, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? The sign of friendship is becoming an act of betrayal and so, so Jesus was arrested. Matthew 26 said, the men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. So that's the betrayal in the first two verses. The next bit is the resistance by the disciples or the resistance of sorts Verse 49, we see the disciples were kind of uncertain as to what what they should do. Lord, should we we strike with our swords? And before Jesus had time to answer, there is Peter with his sword, slashing away and and taking off the the servant's ear. Peter puts up the fight. It's from John's Gospel that we find out that it is Peter. Luke, Luke kind of saves his blushes and doesn't tell us who it is. But one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And we know the servant to be Malchus. Poor Malchus lost an ear in that um, foray. But the Lord stops the resistance in verse 51 and he heals the servant. No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. I love this particular verse. Man's mistakes are overridden by Christ, Man's mistakes are overridden by Christ. What a comfort is that truth, isn't it? How many ears have we sliced off with our cutting tongues over the months, over the years and deeply regretted it? Sometimes even now you think, oh no, why did I say that? Why did I say that? Christ is able to heal and restore those wounds just like he did to Malchus's ear. So, if you're still thinking, oh no, what did I do? Just remember this. The Lord touched Malchus's ear. Peter's mistake. It was a, a mistake. He meant well, but it was a mistake. The Lord overrides man's mistakes. The resistance of sorts by the disciples, verses 49, 51. 52 and 53, we see the surrender of the Lord Jesus Christ. He hands himself over willingly in this verse 52. There, he, there is no resistance from the Lord. There's no running away. He could have done in the darkness, in the confusion. Why? Because it had to be this way. Here is the true high priest. He's presenting the true sacrificial lamb himself. Here begins the true Passover. The one that that the Bible speaks about. Jesus then questions the priests. Am I leading a rebellion that you come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you didn't lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Of course Jesus could have saved himself. Matthew makes that clear because Matthew includes the bit that he says there, I could call on my father and he would at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. That's 60,000, at at a, you know, a considerate guess, angels at his disposal. Jesus knew that. He said, I could have called on my Father and he would have at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. More than a match for this mob, perhaps 100, perhaps 200, perhaps less. 60,000 angels, boof, they would have gone. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled, says Jesus, that say it must happen in this way? Scripture was being fulfilled. Jesus was doing his Father's will. And then we learn from Matthew, the disciples flee. So much for Peter's promise earlier. I am ready to go with you to prison. I am ready to go with you to death. When the crisis and the crunch comes, there goes Peter. Way off into the distance. So what we have very clearly in this passage is a a time really of utter crisis for the disciples and and, and what struck me forcibly and and has done for years. I've known this passage, it's a familiar passage, it's one that for some reason has gripped me. One, why did the Lord suffer so much in Gethsemane and why does it seem when he comes out of it he is so calm? It's a passage I've pondered for a long time and and, and that's to me that that stands out as the the great thing. The different reactions between the disciples and the Lord. And and there are lessons from that. The Lord Jesus, he is calm. He is in control. Did you notice that in the passage? That it's him that's addressing, that it's him that's taking control of the situation. And and the other Gospels really help to bring that out in, in greater detail. Why was he so composed in such a time of utter chaos and utter crisis? And I think the answer is clearly spelled out, particularly in the Gospel of John. He knew what was going to happen. He knew the exact path that he was needing to take and this was it. At this moment ahead, it was his time. Yes, darkness darkness was going to reign for a short period of time. But then light would come at the end of that and that darkness needed to happen. It was no surprise to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as regards the disciples fleeing from him, did it break his confidence to see them go? No, he'd already spoken to them of it. A time has come when you will be scattered, each to your own homes. You will leave me alone, but I am not alone for the Father is with me. Jesus was never alone, apart from when the Lord punished his, that our sins were punished upon him and God the Father turned his face and he cried out in that agony. The hour has come for the Lord's departure and Jesus knows it. Jesus here is resting, even in the midst of chaos and crisis and the will of God the perfect will of God. All that is happening is meant to happen. And Jesus knows that. He's aware of it. His mind is at peace. He's calm. He's in control. He's submissive to the perfect will of God. There is no record of Jesus being afraid in the Bible. Fear is something he didn't know because he was resting in the power and and the perfect will of God. So we, we see Jesus' reaction there. He's very strong. He's calm. He's in control. He's composed. But then we turn to the disciples and, and then what do we see there? Quite, quite the opposite. The disciples are afraid. They're confused. They, they seem to have no idea what's going on despite Jesus' preparation in the hours before. As you look back to the, to the chapters in the other Gospels, Jesus has been preparing the disciples. If they'd have listened... To what he'd been saying and praying in the garden just literally hours before they would have known what was going to happen but but all they see here in the garden is just uh, this utter confusion this commotion and what's happening to them is, is is awful that their minds are full of fear and uncertainty their world is falling apart so what do they do they flee they flee for their lives and and one or two follow safely at a distance. How can we apply that to us at Bishop Hannington this evening, to those who are listening online? Well, because what we have in this passage is more than a, a history lesson. It is a history lesson. These things really did happen. But it's more than a history lesson. It's a call. It's a call for us to be like Jesus in our minds, for us to somehow look upon him as our model and example and for us to seek our minds to become like his. A call for us to be calm and composed in times of trial, in times of crisis, in times of uncertainty, in times of fear, opposition, times that will certainly come. From a human Standpoint, this betrayal and arrest was a disaster. Through the disciples' eyes, it was a car crash and they were in it. But from the divine standpoint, it was the fulfillment and the perfect working out of the will of God in salvation. It was predestined to be this way. And I think if we're honest, we're kind of more like the disciples in times of trouble and crisis. We, 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 we fight. We, we flee life's troubles. Our, our minds and our hearts in this calm and easy situation might resolve to, to, to be like Jesus. But when, when trouble comes, sometimes we, we usually fail in times of crisis. But, but as Christians, we, we shouldn't. As Christians, we are told in 1 Corinthians that we have the mind of Christ. Part of our inheritance as Christians because the Lord Jesus lives in us by his spirit is to have the mind of Christ. Christ dwells in us by his spirit. And the Apostle Paul urged the Christians in Philippi to let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And let me kind of cement my point here by reminding you of Romans chapter 12, the great call there of the Apostle Paul. Therefore I urge you, says Paul, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't be moulded by this world's values and beliefs, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. Our minds as Christians should be, be being renewed day by day by his spirit. And as Christians and as a church we are to grow and to nurture a heavenly mind. We are to have the outlook that the Lord Jesus would have in any particular situation we are to have a bible inspired view of our circumstances and like jesus to know that whatever happens he is always with us we're never alone it might feel that way but the truth is that we are not we we need to develop a theological world view not one that's inspired or given to us by by whatever propaganda has come our way but, but a, but a worldview that is Bible-inspired, that is theological, God-inspired. We, ha- we need to have a, a setting of our minds on things above, not on earthly things. We need to be being made new in the attitude of our minds. This is what, what God is doing in us by his Spirit. That sounds hard work, Phil, some of you say. I, I've, I've tried that, I just can't do it. But that's God's call to us, to seek and to nurture that heavenly mind. Why should we make the effort? Why should we have our minds transformed in this way? Because, and simply because, the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace, says Paul in Romans chapter 8. The mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. There is reward for this heavenly mindedness. Even in the midst of crisis, even in the midst of chaos. Two words that, that well sum up our current world, don't they? And maybe even our individual life situation at the moment. Chaos. Crisis. We all go through it at times. That's just the way the world is. Troubles. The Lord said, you will have troubles. But fear not. I have overcome them. We're reminded of it day in, day out. Our climate, our economy, our our politics, our morality in the world. Even in our church's situations. Chaotic. Crisis. It's there. Fear. We've had fear for years of late, haven't we? So much fear has been injected into our hearts and our society. It's become a close neighbour, hasn't it? Fear. For some it's even become a housemate. Or a lodger, it's just there. For some, it's taken control of their lives. The mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Let's learn, like the Lord Jesus Christ, to rest our whole beings, bodies and minds, in the sovereign power and goodness of God. God is sovereign, God is also good. When God passed before Moses, when Moses said, let me see you, and Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock, God passed before him, and what did he show him? His goodness. God is good. You might think, that, oh my life, Lord, you are not good to me. God is good. God is sovereign in his power, and God is good. Whatever God is doing, it is good. The psalmist, doesn't he, says that time and time again. He thanks God for his goodness and his mercy. Let's trust in Christ. Let's believe in his presence, his promises. I am with you always. Maybe some of you need to apply that to your hearts this evening. I am with you. I am with you. The sovereign, the powerful, the almighty God. We need to apply that to us as a church. Christ is with us. Let's expect great things. Let's nurture this heavenly outlook, this heavenly mind, this heavenly expectation of good things. I think we're sometimes kind of quite happy with mediocreness, with lukewarmness. The Lord isn't. He doesn't want us to be lukewarm. He wants us to be boiling hot. I'd love it to be that that when we kind of enter our church on a Sunday, that we kind of, that we feel the heat. God is here. God is present. It's been like that in the past. Read books on revival. It's the most wonderful thing. You can almost sense and feel people come into church having never been in a church. And, woo! They feel the heat. They sense the presence of God. Let's trust and believe that God is able to do these things. Let's ask him for them. Pray for them. Live in such a way that we can bring these things into, 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 into being. Let's seek to have the mind of Christ. We can do that individually. A mind without fear, a mind at peace with God and with, with ourselves, a mind that's that's in control. The spirit, the fruit of the spirit is self control. Are we having trouble controlling ourselves? Pray the Lord to give you strength to have that self control, to live a life that pleases God. A life and a mind that, that delights in the will of God, no matter what that is, if it's difficult it's hard, whatever I delight in your will O Lord and a a mind that is transformed by his truth his power and his love trust and obey the old hymn says, trust and obey for there's no other way, and trust and obedience, you did a sum you mathematicians here tonight trust plus obedience equals love for God, how do I show my love for God? Trust and obedience equals love for God. What is it that drives out fear? Perfect love drives out fear, says the Apostle John. Perfect love, trust and obedience in Christ, trust and obedience in God. Transformed minds lead to transformed hearts, which lead to transformed lives. We might feel like the disciples, utterly hopeless. That was the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. But those same disciples, the Apostle Peter and John and James, they went on to great things. They weren't like that all through their lives. They rose to a stature that we should aim to rise to. Transformed lives, transformed hearts, transformed minds glorify God. They bless others. They bless us too. It's a win 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 situation. We've seen a time of of chaos and utter crisis in the garden tonight. But we've also had a glimpse of of our saviour there, calm and in control and and utterly composed. May this old hymn be our prayer as we close. May the mind of Christ my saviour live in me from day to day by his power and love controlling all I do and say and think, and believe, and am. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the call tonight is a very high call indeed. As a church and as an individual, grant us, we pray, the grace and the power and the strength to obey that call to your glory and to our blessing. Amen.